an inside job. Or at least, that was the story. A few years after the events of 9-11, a video started appearing for download on the internet, making the astonishing and unproven claim that the atrocity that was September 11 was an inside job perpetrated by none other than the US government. So this week on Download This Show, the impact of Loose Change, a wild conspiracy theory video that really changed the world of online video and preempted much of the age of misinformation we're living through now. Also on the show, Facebook producing sunglasses with a set of cameras inside them and what would convince you to buy a foldable phone? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to download this show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here. And from Crikey, Cameron Wilson, welcome back to Download This Show. Hey, Mark. And we have another new guest, uh, Alice Clark, freelance journalist, joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Very strange selection of objects to pull from this week. Uh, just generally a strange week. But I did want to start with a conspiracy movie that has come to define the early days of the viral video and also the early days of online misinformation. Of course, in the last week, we had the anniversary of 9-11. And not long after 9-11 saw the appearance of a film by the name of Loose Change. And this was a film that there were multiple iterations of. But the underlying idea behind this film is the conspiracy theory, the incredibly unproven conspiracy theory, that in 9-11 was an inside job. So where in the spectrum of, of internet culture would you place loose change? I think it really is the kind of proto-internet conspiracy theory because it started to lay down um, some of the same kind of conventions and behaviours that you would see in the genre and, and from conspiracy theorists thereafter. I think it came out in 2005 and it was a pretty low-budget affair. But why it was viewed by so many people and the, the director claims that it was viewed by 100 million people and has kind of gone through a number of releases is because it happened at the same time that internet video was taking off. And so when they first released the um, Loose Change, uh, it was not only kind of distributed as a DVD, but it was also shared on BitTorrent, which meant that people could could easily uh, download it and, and get it from other people. And then soon after, I think the second version of it took off on Google Video, which was the precursor to, to YouTube. So for the first time, it was easy to spread you know, video in a, in a decent quality around the place without having gatekeepers decide that, hey, like, you know, this conspiracy theory about, you know, that jet fuel can't melt steel beams is actually probably not worth putting to air. Those kind of gatekeepers are gone and it could spread for the first time and it did. It kind of sits in this really interesting moment, Cam, where it's early days of the viral video. It's also early days of, well, a lot of what we're living through right now with, with sort of misinformation and this sort of this idea that if I found something on the internet, it constitutes me doing my own research. Yeah, and I think what was really clever about it and why it's had so much staying power is that Loose Change doesn't do all the work for the audience. It raises a lot of questions, points out, you know, what it calls inconsistencies in the, you know, official narrative. Mind you, I think that it's been pretty clearly debunked with like, you know, having hundreds of like assumptions that don't actually make any sense and many, many factual errors. 
But what they did was say, well, here are some things that we think that you should start thinking about. And why that is kind of so impactful is because it turns conspiracy theories from something that, you know, someone is telling you almost into something that's interactive and makes it feel like something that you can get involved with. And that's where you kind of see its links to things like, you know, the anti-vaxxer movement today, QAnon, where these aren't just people being told things, but they make communities where they discover, you know, in inverted commas, they discover the truth about things that they're told. And so it was very clever in that way. And, and I think, you know, that's partly due to the fact that it was very low budget you know, it came out of a fictional project uh, or a fictional movie that was going to be done between two guys and then ended up becoming this. But I think as a kind of result of that, it doesn't have all the answers, which then puts the impetus on, on someone else to do it, but makes them feel involved in that process. Yeah, completely. I think it's why people have always loved conspiracy theories. The truth is something you can't do much about in most of these big, horrible cases, but you can build a community around having a new enemy. So suddenly there's someone you can fight, there is a group of people you can make friends with and have a community with, and there are concrete actions you can take. You suddenly feel less powerless and more in control. The internet is perfect for that kind of community. Can you draw a line between that behaviour that built up around this film to what we're seeing today, or do you think I'm over-egging it? I think you can draw a line from what grew out of this movie to what's happening today. But I think that line is only half of the line. I think you can draw it back to JFK and Roswell and all the other big conspiracy theories. This behavior and these desires have always been there. It's just the internet gave them a home. Loose change in a way was also a symptom of 9-11, which was, you know, this this great event that happened that we didn't have much information about that was hugely traumatic. And that that same line can also be drawn to, I think, uh, what created the conditions for Trumpism generally, and not to kind of get into broader social discussion. It's very, very hard, I think, to kind of almost distinguish whether this was just a symptom or something that was always going to happen. If not lose change, it was going to be something else. But I do think that, you know, they're all kind of involved in, in each other. And if not for 9-11, you wouldn't have, uh, you know, the kind of situation we're all in today. So they kind of feed into each other. Yeah, exactly. They they influence each other. And, you know, my gut feeling is if we didn't have loose change, we would have had something else that eventually kind of did this. And although it kind of came at the start of this this movement, it might have been something else. And if it wasn't a, a movie about 9-11, it might have been a, a movie about something else. You know, maybe the Benghazi, which was another big thing in the US that it has a lot of conspiracy theories around. I think the conditions, removing those gatekeepers, building communities that aren't moderated by anyone but the people themselves, that is facilitated online, that was eventually kind of going to lead to this. But Loose Change really did this in, in a way that um, I think has laid the blueprint for conspiracy theories to come. The world is easier in a conspiracy theory. Everybody wants to believe their government is competent enough to create a disaster if they're not able to stop one. People just want friends and something to fight against. And I think the other part of Loose Change, which is interesting, is that the director, and he kind of said, I don't really believe that. You know, I made that when I was a kid, when he was in his 20s. And it's just so fascinating to see that the impact that someone like that can have, he's moved on with his life seemingly. But there's many other people who obviously clearly still believe this. So you can see the impact that someone has. And although they may go on to kind of make a new pathway, other people are kind of left believing this in their wake. 
download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Cameron Wilson and Alice Clark joining us. And you may have seen this on social media over the last couple of days. Ray-Ban glasses, sunglasses and Facebook have teamed up together to create a new pair of glasses that, well, they're sunglasses with a camera inside them. Why? Why is this a thing, Alice? If you believe the Facebook line, it's a thing because people want to be able to take photos and remember a moment without taking themselves out of it. If you God, want to how be... many meetings, how many meetings were there to come up with that line? <laughs> oh, God, so many. If you are less generous to Facebook, uh, I think perhaps the purpose of them is to get you used to Gen 1 glasses with cameras in them. So Gen 2, you're more used to and more able to get used to live streaming from them. So how does it actually work? You you put them on and built into the side of them is like a little sort of lens at the, where the hinge normally is, right? Yeah. So on both sides of the glasses, there's there's a lens and there's also speakers and a microphone. So you can say, hey, Facebook, take a picture or hey, Facebook, take a video. And I can take a 30 second video or take a photo. And then later on, you can download them to an app on your phone, which is not Facebook and is not connected to Facebook. And then you export them to your camera roll and then you take them to another app. Yeah, I think what they're trying to do is they've been limited by the form factor. So the sunglasses to Facebook and Ray-Ban's credit actually look like normal sunglasses, other like other kind of iterations that have happened before in the past. And I think that that kind of small form factor has meant that they've had to make other sacrifices as well and, and kind of keep it quite simple. You know, I think they can keep like, you know, 500 photos, 30 half minute videos. It, it is very simple at the moment. I think Alice is right. Like, you know, the whole point is to kind of get these slowly coming out. So we get used to um, people, you know, having them and they'll be able to iterate on them in the future and, and have better ones. Surprising for me, I'm actually not that sceptical of these. I think just by the fact that they look more normal means that they might be more successful because I don't know if you remember like the Google Glass, even Spectacles oh, don't worry, Snapchat. We'll get, there. <laughs> we'll get there, don't worry. We'll talk about the competitors. I mean, the, the, the fact that it does look, I mean, this is, I think, a really important thing, right? The fact that it does look very much like normal sunglasses creates a new issue. How do you know when somebody wearing sunglasses is or isn't filming you, Alice? Is there is there a little red light that comes on? Yeah, there's a little white light that comes on the front and it makes a noise. So, But the noise is fairly easily covered if there's a little bit of background noise and you're not always going to notice a tiny LED. I kind of want to use them for when I'm riding my bike and like I want to take a picture of a cool bird or something. Like I can see a lot of really good non-nefarious uses for them, but who boy, are there a lot of nefarious uses for them. When you take a photo, what kind of, like, does it come out landscape? Does it come out portrait? Like, do we have a sense of what the actual output is? Yeah. So I've actually had them for almost two weeks now and they come out landscape and they look pretty decent. They're not quite as good as a photo you'd take on your phone, but they're good enough that you'd post it to Instagram. And the videos are fairly stable. they show exactly what you see. The audio is pretty good. <laughs> You're like, I'm running out of enthusiasm to describe <laughs> these pictures. Let's talk about the competitors then, right? Because within about 20 minutes of this story hitting the newsstands, I got sent push notifications from the PR team for Snapchat saying, hey, hey, we've got stuff too. So there are competitors out right now, aren't there, Cam? 
Yeah, so Snapchat has their spectacles. And my understanding is that they're not for general consumption, like they're not for the public anymore. I think they're kind of limited to influencers and a few other people as well. And of <laughs> course, there used to be uh, Google Glasses as well, which got retired uh, a few years ago. Um, I always love it. I mean, the, the, the term for people wearing them as glass holes was just perfect. I think that really kind of captured it. The spectacles do more than these Facebook uh, Ray-Ban glasses do. They actually have a screen in them and they can do more complicated things. You know, I think they really needed to do a reset on these wearable cameras because they just had such a bad reputation. And I also think that the time that we're in at the moment where, you know, we're we're further in the future, we kind of increasingly are having to accept there are cameras everywhere. It's easier than ever to, you know, take a photo on on your phone. They're quite small as well. I think, you know, for better or for worse, expectations of of not being filmed in public have kind of been eroded and I think probably bad for us but for if you're launching a product like this I think that there's a much greater chance that this will be successful versus um, Google or Snapchat's versions in the past. A few years ago Snapchat famously sort of rebuffed an offer to be bought by Facebook and shortly thereafterwards uh, Instagram owned by Facebook rolled out stories which looked freakishly like a a Snapchat uh, function and now we've got Facebook releasing a pair of sunglasses after the last sort of major brand to do that was Snapchat. My question here is, did Snapchat just massively piss off Mark Zuckerberg to the point that he's just going to take everything they've ever done? <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I'm sure he is motivated by revenge, but I think the thing that I, I mean, Mark I choose Zuckerberg... to believe. That's what, that is what I choose to believe. I cannot prove. Look, if I was a billionaire and I had unlimited power, I would absolutely use everything that I had at my disposal to pursue petty revenge. So in that way, I'm, I'm feeling quite aligned with Mark Zuckerberg right now. As for Facebook and Snapchat, I mean, Facebook now for years has shown a willingness just to copy other people's features because they can. They think, you know, why why do something new when we can just take it from other people? Um, we've kind of seen that, obviously, with Instagram stories. Um, we've seen that with Clubhouse, the audio-only um, uh, social media platform. Facebook, along with a lot of other tech companies, decided to roll out similar features. I think the point is that Silicon Valley is, you know, they're filled with copycats and also they're kind of risk-averse. They're like, it's very easy for us to roll out a product. You know, once someone's had a, a tough an idea, that's the tough part, but then we can probably implement it and, and that's what they're doing. They're saying, well, we might as well have a go, throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And look, I mean, famously, Apple have gone many, many years taking various bits of technology that were already out in the field and then combining it into an object that people actually wanted. I guess the the question is that, is this the sort of thing that will take off? Alice, I mean, I know you've had a go, but if push came to shove, would you actually hand over money for something like this? Oh, not even a little bit. It's $450. <laughs> I need the new prescriptions even more expensive. It's just, it's too much, especially when I need to be made so I can see. Facebook has had a lot of failed products. I don't know if this is going to be one of them. And I'm really curious if enough influencers and cool people will buy them so they catch on. <laughs> but this one has the most potential for legs aside from Oculus. Yeah. I mean, for that amount of money, you could almost buy one set of AirPods. Yeah, like like half a pair of AirPod Maxes. You could get like the left side. (laughs) What about you, Cam? Do you think it'll take off? Yeah, I think it's only a matter of time. We're going to be wearing more of these wearable things. And I I just tend to think that, you know, the more that they can do to make it feel normal, the more chance they have of succeeding. 
I guess there is that question about privacy and, you know, even that little light, it's pretty easy to block. So you can just, you can very easily convert it into what looks like a totally normal pair of Ray-Bans, even when recording. But I just think we're at the point where that's just, we kind of all accept that. And so for those reasons, I've, I think it might take off. All right. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and also foldable phones. Yes, if you haven't seen these phones before, they're, they're kind of fascinating. They're sort of phones where you can fold them and the screen folds with it and it keeps working. And apparently, foldy phones are experiencing a sales surge in Australia. Yeah, Samsung says they've taken more pre-orders so far this year for their folding phones than it sold foldable handsets all of last year. So I guess, you know, we're, we're kind of getting into the later part of the year anyway, but that seems to suggest that there's more people buying them. I don't really see the appeal, but then, you know, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, you know, phones these days, they all really do look exactly the same. Like if you're getting an iPhone or many of the Android phones, they look essentially, you know, identical. So I'm not surprised that there is at least some demand for something different. I just think that people are kind of keen for a bit of variety and that's why foldy phones are kind of a, a little bit hot. Alice, would you get a foldy phone? Absolutely, in a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not just about wanting more variety, though that is a part of it, but it's about wanting more screen. I use my phone for pretty much most of my emails. I read all my books on it. I play a lot of games on my phone. And I just want more screen, but carrying around like an iPad or a tablet is not very practical. But this is a tablet. It folds out. Suddenly I have the big screen I desire. How does it work? Well, there is a very fancy hinge in the middle that took a lot of engineering. Like I think it was possibly the hardest part of the phone, even harder than making glass that folds because you need to make a hinge that can survive having dust in it that doesn't close too much and doesn't break anything and can open and close thousands of times. Basically, it's two phones glued together with a hinge with an extra little bit of foldy glass in the middle so the screen continues on. It's pretty clever. And so how do they get it so that the the image still works, even though it's sort of mid-fold cam? So I think that what they've been able to do is they've been able to get the screens so thin that they essentially become flexible. You know, normal phone screens traditionally have been made out of glass and because that's thick, you can't bend. But with um, the new screens, I think it's OLED screens, they're able to get them thin enough so that they can kind of be able to fold that. Now they have, I think in the past had problems because obviously because you're making them so small, um, they can be kind of fragile. But my understanding is they've, they've really made kind of progress on that. They've definitely become a lot more durable because I have dropped my Fold 3 from a reasonable height onto a hard wooden floor many, many times and still has not broken. <laughs> so what's the competition like? I mean, are Samsung the only people doing this or are there other people out there doing it as well? So TCL has gotten in on it. They've also made some rollable screens, which aren't on the market yet, but they have a folding phone. In America, Microsoft has a dual screen phone, which folds but has two separate screens, kind of like a Nintendo 3DS. <laughs> and LG supposedly has one on the way, but it kind of has not materialized. And I think also Huawei has one. So is your impression, Alice, that this is going to be one of those cute niche things that, and I say this with love, nerds <laughs> get, or do you think it'll open up into a wider market? I think it's where phones are going. Because if you look at something like the Samsung Z Flip 3, it's 
the same size phone as you usually have, but it folds up small so it can actually fit into a pair of women's jeans, which is mm-hmm. a miracle for a, re- a phone with a reasonable size screen. And they're becoming more affordable. So really, there's no barriers anymore to getting one. They're vaguely waterproof. You can drop them. Once they get the aspect ratios right, I think they're going to be everywhere and they're going to go mainstream. Oh, I don't know. I you you can never say never, but I'm just I I remain kind of skeptical uh, about them. We've kind of seen phone sizes kind of plateau because I think people just you know at some point you actually don't need anything that much bigger. I mean, I always say like if you need a bigger phone, just bring it closer to your face. Um, <laughs> what are you, my grandma? Oh my god, that is the, that is the most grandma response ever. I know, I know, I know. It's a bit it's a bit unfair. I also love that you were backing the. Facebook glasses, but all foldy phones. You're like, yeah, I'm not too sure about that. But Facebook, Facebook glasses. The whole point is they look normal and it's kind of innocuous. The whole point of design of their design is so that you don't realise they're anything but normal sunglasses. They're kind of not noticeable. I think that like with these fold out phones, even still, like you just don't want really kind of big and, and weird things. So as you can kind of tell, I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit skeptical about it. But who knows? Maybe I'm just too attached to my current iPhone. Okay, so right that of reply, argument, Alice Clark. So that argument sounds a lot like me when the original iPhone came out in America, <laughs> and I was like, "I already have a phone and an iPod. Why would I need them to be in one?" <laughs> like, I already have a phone and a tablet, and I wish they were the same thing. All right, finally here on Download This Show, we have plenty of subscriptions in our lives at the moment. You might have a subscription to a newspaper. You might have a subscription to a million video streaming services, but then there's the realm of the micro subscription. So these are all sorts of small things where you can subscribe to for like a dollar here, two dollars here. And Alice Clark, are we killing the internet with micro subscriptions? 100% yes. We're killing social media by having everybody be someone you can subscribe to. Right. So this is, of course, to align with the fact that Twitter, for example, have a new option where you can literally subscribe to a person's tweets, which is hilarious for so many reasons. Is that right? Yeah, it's hilarious and dumb. And also Tumblr, you can subscribe to an individual (laughs) user. And possibly the most surprising part of that is that Tumblr still exists. Okay. So we've got these various different subscriptions that you can kind of, you could subscribe to a, a person that you enjoy on these platforms. It's got a slight whiff of OnlyFans to it. <laughs> um, Cam, is there any sense that this is ever going to take off? Like, is there any sense there's real take up for people who want to subscribe to these things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is totally the way things are going to go. And, I, you know, I think there is reasons to feel grim about it. You know, we're kind of, it's almost like we're uh, atomizing every different part of us that we can kind of make into some kind of content on some platform to kind of sell. So obviously like that is ex- exceedingly grim and upsetting. But I think the flip side is also like, there are people out there who are doing a lot of great work that often goes out kind of for free. And and why shouldn't people be able to, you know, make some money for, for stuff that they do and create that is worth things to other people? And so, you know, with, with places like Twitter, which is offering in the ability to uh, essentially paywall some of your tweets, you know, if you're doing great tweets, why not be able to put them behind a paywall? And if people don't want to subscribe to them, that's fine. They can still get your original stuff. But, like, it's giving people options. And I, I think we're always going to have a lot of the free internet because people are always going to reach as many many people as possible. And that's why you don't have paywalls and everything. But if people are doing stuff, that's great. Why shouldn't they be able to earn a couple of dollars for it? 
I absolutely think that if people are doing great things, that they should be able to earn a couple of dollars for it. But I also don't, I, I think that putting all these subscriptions up and allowing people to put themselves behind paywalls is opening them up to get really, really sued. Because most of these people do not understand international copyright law, and nor should they need to. But you then have, I, I go back to Tumblr again, they said that what was really great about Tumblr Plus was that it would give you an opportunity to pay fan fiction authors and fan artists for their work, which is really cool until you remember that that's quite illegal and will get them very sued. But in the terms hmm. of service, Tumblr has absolved themselves of all responsibility, so it's the user's problem. And they don't have That's a legal really department. What are the sorts of things a person could do <laughs> on those platforms that would push you over the line where you, you would subscribe to them? I, at the moment, can't imagine what it would be that would get me to subscribe. But then again, I have subscribed to some really dumb stuff in my time. So who knows? <laughs> Depends on how. It's like when you open up your credit card statement, you're like, "Why did I subscribe to that? When yeah. did I subscribe to that? Oh, <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. That explains that." Cam, what I mean, I know you're you're quite bullish on this. Uh, what are the sort of the sorts of micro subscriptions? Try saying that ten times fast. That you think are worth money. I tend to support people based on the idea that I want them to produce more work. And so, you know, there, there are some kinds of people who, who put uh, some, a lot of their stuff behind paywalls. And for me, it's rarely the idea that I can't access something. You know, often it's more just like, I think you're doing good work and I want to give you money so you keep on doing it. And so that means like, you know, often you'll see places like podcasts or writers being like, if you subscribe to me, you'll get all these extra features. Whereas often I just want to be like, just, you know, take my money and keep doing what you're doing because <laughs> I, I like what you're doing. I think those kinds of subscriptions make a lot of sense on sites like Medium and Twitch where these people are providing a really cool service and it's amazing and it's platform specific. So yes, it should be done on that platform. But for things like, hey, if you want to see my really cool tweets and hear my really cool podcast, we already have services for that. That's what Patreon is for. This is just Twitter wanting to have an extra piece of the pie without necessarily offering creators protection or uses much for their hard-earned dollars other than making the social internet less social and more transactional. I think what you're saying, Alice, is a good point, but tends to actually be like almost a criticism of the gig economy generally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see this with places like Substack is offering some limited legal services to some of their writers. But broadly, this is what's happening when we're kind of unmoored from traditional employers. People are kind of on their own and that's where they often get into or have the potential of getting into legal problems. So for me, I just think that the, the idea of giving people the option of being able to, to monetize stuff that they're doing that's important is ultimately valuable. I don't think many people will necessarily use it, but if it does turn out to be something useful, it's better to kind of have the option, I reckon, and then being able to, I guess, navigate those legal issues than actually not allowing people to to capture the value that they're creating that you know essentially twitter is getting for free because you know all the all the reason that they do this is so that you can um so they can run ads versus your tweets or make some money from it it allows you to get some of that money back yourself when you're creating something that people find valuable potentially but then you run into the risks like the twitch musicians who suddenly found that their entire back catalog was being deleted or muted without warning because 
they had just assumed Twitch had licenses for the music and it turned out they didn't. And so overnight, their entire income was just wiped out. There's too many consequences to start eroding without thinking about what happens legally and what happens next. There's too much at stake. Well, thank God there is a 30-minute program on the ABC that will aerate all of these issues every week. That is my (laughs) artless segue to the end of the program. Alice Clark, thank you so much for joining us on Download This Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Please come back and do it again. Uh, Cam Wilson from Crikey, thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. And if you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to find us on. With that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.